Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop, What's New in Managing Blood Clots During Cancer Treatments? And this is an important topic and one that's becoming even more important in today's world for all of you to be aware of, and we have um, a wonderful group of speakers on this topic today. We also have collaborated with a number of different organizations, cancer organizations, to reach all of you, and, of course, there is your great interest in this topic as well. We have on the call today over 745 participants, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, Pakistan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you're truly from all over the world, and we're delighted with your response to this important program. Today's program was made possible by a grant from the Bristol-Myers-Squibb Pfizer Alliance, and we really want to thank them for their support and their collaborative effort in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers. I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Edith Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is Clinical Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology, Program Leader, Gastrointestinal Oncology, Department of Medical Oncology, Director, Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities, Associate Director, Diversity Affairs, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, and she is the President of the National Medical Association. And Dr. Mitchell is going to address an overview of cancer treatments, the review of risk factors and causes of blood clots, and knowing the signs and symptoms. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. It is certainly a pleasure for me to uh, be here with uh, you and our audience today, and a pleasure to work with and join such an esteemed panel. Um, cancer and thrombosis or blood clots uh, is really a big problem in medicine now, and one that is very, very important in terms of patient treatment and management, but also in terms of various medications and research that is ongoing. Uh, there has been a known close relationship between cancer and blood clotting or thrombosis for many, many years, dating back to what is called the Trousseau syndrome. It was Dr. Trousseau who first described the clinical association between venous clotting or venous thromboembolism, some people call it VTE, and occult malignancy. And this was actually found in and described in 1865. Uh, today we know that cancer is associated with blood clotting and that it is caused by what we determine a hypercoagulable state. And a hypercoagulable state simply means that there is an increased uh, chance of clotting. It is well recognized that there is a fourfold increase in the risk of developing blood clots in patients with cancer. And this can uh, occur many times before the cancer is even diagnosed. So if we evaluate patients who develop 
blood clots, what we find is that within a year, many of these individuals who have blood clots and no history of cancer will actually present with a cancer. So therefore, blood clots may be the first sign of cancer. It is also well recognized uh, that this problem can occur. Uh, it is more closely associated with certain tumors, certain tumor types in various locations in the body. Uh, they are, the clots are also more commonly seen in individuals who have widespread tumor, uh, as well as those who are undergoing treatment. So there are some uh, other factors, such as blood clots are more commonly seen in women. They may be seen more commonly in individuals who are advancing in age, so more commonly seen in the elderly population, but may be seen in anyone. Certainly anyone who has had a blood clot in the history uh, or someone who is bedridden or is immobile. And by immobile meaning those individuals who may have had fractures and who are in cast. And for whatever reason, our patients are not able to do their usual movement, walking, and others. Clots are also seen more frequently in individuals who are overweight. Uh, for those who have had any recent surgery, especially if it has been abdominal surgery, uh, for patients, they're more commonly seen in individuals who have indwelling catheters. So uh, basically, most patients with cancers have some of these risks, and many patients have several or more of these risks. It's also recognized that certain medications have a higher incidence of blood clotting. So therefore, in cancer patients, for those who are undergoing therapy, as well as the survivors who have completed all treatment, uh, it's very important for the patient and the, the healthcare team to know about the risk of clotting, and to therefore investigate those patients who have symptoms. However, many patients have no symptoms related to blood clots, and some have few symptoms that are very mild and therefore often thought of uh, as just uh, a part of the syndrome and therefore not mentioning it to the healthcare team. It's very important for the patient to tell the healthcare team, no matter who it is that they are discussing uh, their situation with, to let the doctor or someone on the healthcare team know about symptoms. So what are the symptoms? Well, one of the first symptoms that we think about is pain in the legs. It could be pain or tenderness, pain on movement, especially of the calf muscles. Uh, but the clots can occur at other places. If there is any swelling or edema, this is also 
a very prominent um, symptom of blood clots. For more severe clots, there could be pain or tenderness in the abdomen, and certainly one of the highest risk of advanced blood clotting is what is called a pulmonary embolus, which means that the blood clot has advanced, usually from the lower extremities or the legs, up to uh, the heart and through the heart into the lungs, uh, thereby causing either chest pain or shortness of breath. Uh, therefore, if any of these symptoms exist, uh, it's very important for the patient to let the uh, provider team know about it. <clears throat> Just as there have been advancements in cancer treatment and patients are living longer and there are more survivors of cancer, it becomes increasingly important to let the provider team know if there are any uh, of these symptoms um, that may exist. Now, you ask, well, what can we do about blood clots? Well, prevention is very important, and you're going to hear from more members of our team today regarding some of the treatments and preventions that we can utilize to try and prevent blood clots in patients, first of all, but certainly in patients who develop clots or thrombosis. We have outstanding and excellent treatments, and we have new research ongoing. So some of the treatments that have been developed over the years, warfarin has been available for many, many years, but it's also important if you are taking warfarin or if you've prescribed, been prescribed warfarin, to make sure the healthcare team knows about other medications, including over-the-counter compounds or medications that you may be receiving because there are a number of products that are uh, contraindicated or can interfere with warfarin, including uh, any alcohol, are uh, foods. There are others such as heparin, low molecular weight heparin, and now we have some oral medications for treating patients. We may also treat patients in the hospital or at home, and we may use some of these medications to prevent thromboses in patients who are high risk. So it's very important for communications between the healthcare team and the patient. So make sure you inform your doctor or anyone on the healthcare team regarding thromboses or any symptoms related to blood clotting because for many of the patients, even after treatment for cancer and successful treatment so that patients are survivors, uh, they are still at high risk for development of clots even years after cancer treatment. So with that, I would like to turn it back to Dr. Messner, and you will hear from other members of the healthcare team. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. That was really outstanding, eloquent, and very clear to understand. So thank you. Um, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Daniel Lenahan. Dr. Lenahan is Professor of Medicine, Director of Clinical Research, Advanced Heart Failure Program, Cardiology Oncology Program, Vanderbilt Heart and Vascular Institute. 
Dr. Lenikan is going to address the discussion of blood clots, including deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and vein thromboembolism. He's also going to talk about guidelines to reduce recurrence and manage blood clots and clinical trials. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lenahan. Thanks, Carolyn. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk about these, these items. It certainly is a challenge, and as Dr. Mitchell already highlighted, uh, you know, these are very important issues to, to patients and uh, providers alike. Uh, the, the biggest, the biggest uh, concern is, is not only do you want to identify these problems at an early stage so that they can get effective treatment, but as Dr. Mitchell had mentioned, thinking about how you can prevent them is a, a really important issue in patients that are being treated for cancer. Now, one of the basic things that's so important is, is that when you develop a blood clot, uh, it does kind of add complexity to whatever your treatment is, so that that is uh, one of the reasons, if we can prevent it, that we, we definitely want to. Uh, in terms of just to sort of reiterate the language that exists, when somebody says uh, DVT, for instance, uh, during the course of a patient's treatment, they're referring to a deep vein, a deep vein thrombosis, and what that means is one of your one of your bigger veins or the veins that carry more blood back to your heart. Uh, there, you know, would be a difference with a superficial vein thrombosis, and that's not nearly as important. And then uh, pulmonary embolism is, uh, you know, a bigger vein essentially that's in your lungs, and a pulmonary embolism is certainly a life-threatening condition. And then when people refer to venous thromboembolism, that is more of a broad term, which includes. DVTs and PEs together, so it kind of encompasses all of those particular conditions. In terms of what we do to identify them, uh, as uh, first, first and foremost, you know, we have to make sure that patients and providers are aware of the types of symptoms that a patient may have that would lead. Uh, that that may lead to the diagnosis of a DVT or PE, and those include shortness of breath or swelling in an extremity, and then sometimes patients just uh, don't feel well, and for instance, their heart rate is faster than normal, and that could just be a sign that their body is trying to adjust to to a thrombotic process. So, in terms of you know how we go about making the diagnosis of these conditions, you know, it varies on the location. So, for instance, if, if you have swelling in an extremity that is, you know, only one of your extremities, then, you know, we have very good ways of detecting whether there's a blood clot there or not. And that's usually the most uh, straightforward method is an, uh, an ultrasound of, of that extremity. And then uh, in the case of a pulmonary embolism, since the blood clot is in your chest, it's harder to, you can't really do an ultrasound. You have to do some other test. And probably the most common test these days is a CT angiogram, which is a special type of CAT scan that looks at the blood flow in the vessels and is a very good test to confirm 
or you know exclude the presence of a PE. In terms of guidelines to reduce the recurrence or to manage patients with blood clots, either DVTs or PEs, uh, there there are really some extensive guidelines that exist. So you know if you really wanted to know all the details, you you'd have to consult. Uh, you know, a worldwide document that that is over 200 pages and has many, many references in it. So that can be hard to go through. And luckily, there are people that have summarized the majority of recommendations in just a, a couple of pages. So uh, I won't go through all of that. But for instance, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, has a very nice uh, summary recommendations of patients that should be getting, uh, you know, what their treatment or prophylaxis or prevention should be for the development of a DVT or PE. So in, included in that general recommendations, if a patient is hospitalized, <clears throat> there are very specific recommendations for uh, you know, different forms of heparin, for instance, that Dr. Mitchell had mentioned, uh, or Coumadin, which is a, a, a long-standing uh, oral blood thinner that, that exists. And then, from, you know, so if a patient's in the hospital, then there are very specific details on how to hopefully prevent the development of a blood clot. And then if a patient is an outpatient, there are similarly... Uh, a variety of instances. So if, if somebody has a history of a blood clot, then there's going to be a much more uh, compelling reason to have them on some sort of prophylaxis. If they've never had a blood clot before, then we usually reserve prophylaxis for patients that are at particularly high risk. And as Dr. Mitchell mentioned before, there are certain cancers where we are very suspicious that you know they're they're at risk or or they're at a significant risk for a blood clot, and so those patients we may target some sort of prophylactic treatment. <laughs> Where uh, otherwise, if somebody has generally a low risk cancer situation where they're being treated, uh, you know we may not uh, actually need to prophylax them with some sort of blood thinner. They may be able to use other non-drug-based uh, ways of, of managing the potential risk for a blood clot. And then in terms of, you know, uh, when patients are undergoing certain types of chemotherapy, for example, uh, a patient with myeloma who is undergoing multiple drugs, uh, chemotherapy for, their, for the treatment of their myeloma, they would be considered, you know, moderate to high risk for the development of a blood clot. And depending on the situation, you know, you may recommend something as simple as aspirin or uh, something more detailed like Lovenox, uh, which was mentioned earlier, uh, or other newer types of therapies. So I think uh, the details are very extensive and uh, uh, you know, there's actually a lot of information constantly being developed about, you know, how do we refine our, our treatments for DVT or PE and also the prevention of it. 
Now, in terms of clinical trials, we have uh, – it's actually kind of an amazing time for, you know, blood thinner medication, essentially. Uh, certainly in the cardiology world, in the past five years, we've had a number of new therapies that add to our choices in terms of which therapies we could use to prevent the development of a thrombus or, or a blood clot. So in the case of atrial fibrillation, which is a rhythm disturbance that makes somebody at higher risk for the development of a blood clot, and in this case a stroke, we have a number of new drugs that are, are actually uh, pills that you can take as opposed to uh, an injection. And then also they don't require frequent blood monitoring like you you would need if you were on Coumadin, for instance. So I think we now have a, a host of choices in terms of what blood thinners we can use. The difficulty with the newer blood thinners, uh, especially all of the uh, what, what, what we refer to as factor 10A inhibitor is a particular mechanism in which they work uh, with those drugs you don't have to monitor the blood samples, you know, to the same degree. However, these drugs have not been studied as well in the prevention of blood clotting in cancer patients. So it's a, it's a great thing that we have these new options. However, we don't have a lot of solid clinical data to, to tell us, you know, in which instance are these medications appropriate for the pr treatment or prevention of a of a thrombus in a patient undergoing treatment for cancer. So I think that we really do need to continue to look at that and apply uh, very contemporary therapy to our best practices in terms of how to prevent or treat these conditions. Uh, I probably will stop there and uh, hand it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Linehan. That was really excellent, uh, really very informative and outstanding. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Uh, Dr. Fleischman is founding director, Cancer Supportive Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, and accreditation surveyor, American College of Surgeons, Commission on Cancer. And Dr. Fleischman is going to address your quality of life concerns, managing vacations, travel, and weekend trips, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for including me in this call. Um, this is an important topic, and a topic that doesn't really get a lot of attention. Um, if we asked uh, many of our patients what they're concerned about when they go through treatment, it's often uh, losing their hair, being tired, or um, some people might even say of getting an infection and not being able to fight it off. But blood clots, um, as been described, are often something that uh, people um, aren't, don't even talk about and, and may need to be concerned about. And I say may because there are so many factors, the kind of cancer, the kind of treatment, your other medical conditions that may increase um, your risk of a blood clot that can make this pretty scary. So probably the best overall thing to keep in mind is having a discussion with your cancer care team, your oncologist, your oncology nurse, um, 
explaining that you heard about this, and does it apply to me, and do I need to be worried, and what do I need to do? Um, and uh, it, it, it is, some patients even say that this can seem sort of scary uh, because the blood clot can come on at any time, whereas an infection may come over um, a longer period of time. They have a more warning to get to an emergency room or know what to do. So uh, the perception um, is, it needs to be counterbalanced by good information that applies to you. <laughs> Um, and that has to happen with your oncology team. Um, managing uh, all this, uh, in, uh, the previous speakers really spoke about the drugs that are used to uh, anticoagulate or reduce the risk of clots going to tender parts of the body, but there are other um, modalities that may or may not be effective for you and your situation. So uh, this is really offered as a general guide, general information, and most important, discuss this with your team. So um, some people believe that, especially if they're sitting for a long period of time, that doing exercises um, in the leg and even in the arms can ward off a blood clot. I think many of us have been in um, airplanes where we sit in crowded spaces for a long period of time, particularly those of us like me who fly and coach. Um, and if you look in the airline magazines, they often have exercises that are really aimed just at this purpose. And it often involves walking around if that's possible. I like to walk in planes, but sometimes I'm told that the seatbelt sign is on and you can't congregate and you have to sit down. So, of course, the air safety is important, but our health is important, too. If you can't walk around, there are um, usually uh, diagrams that are available, and this information is available online as well as far as doing things like pumping your feet uh, sort of like against an imaginary gas or brake pedal as if you were driving, or ankle circles, or raising your legs as much as that is possible in the, so in the small space that we have, or even rolling your shoulders. Um, these exercises may be helpful to you. Uh, they, they may uh, not be helpful to you. This is an important thing to really ask your team, but they are available. Um, their information is really commonly available, and it's important to know if these are something that you would benefit from, especially if you'll be traveling. The other uh, non-medical modality that is sometimes used to prevent clots are uh, compression stockings. Now, many of us have a sort of a negative reaction to these stockings. They're not always um, the most fashionable, but um, for some people, they work really well. Compression stockings are thicker than usual socks or stockings. They're elastic, and what makes them different than the regular kinds of socks or stockings you would buy in, um, in the department store or online is that they actually are tighter towards the bottom of your leg and loosen towards the top with the idea of keeping the, um, the extra fluid out of your leg and the veins compressed to a certain extent. Um, many people make fun of these, but you know, if in, during, during treatment, um, if you're wearing pants, these are easily, you can easily hide these below, you know, below your pants for men and women. Um, and it's, again, something to discuss with your healthcare team. So especially if you'll be sitting in a car for a long period of time or sitting back and coach for a long period of time, uh, discuss with your team about, you know, your, your travel needs. Um, the 
other thing when it comes to traveling, whether it's an extended vacation or a weekend, um, especially if you're on warfarin, which is um, the most common and oldest anticoagulants, um, people refer to um, Coumadin as one of the brand names, is that it can um, have a variety of interactions with common foods. So um, being out and about and uh, making sure that the foods you're eating are compatible with the blood clotting uh, medication, the anti-blood clotting medication you're taking um, is, is really important. So uh, these are the kinds of things that can be quite helpful to some people uh, in some situations, but what's really important is to um, discuss these things with your healthcare team if that's what you do. You know, there's a variety of information seeking, as we find in our patients. Some patients like lots of information, um, and they like to, to master it and read up on it and be as aware as possible, sort of in advance of the kinds of things that can happen, both good and bad, when they go through their treatment. There are a number of our patients who are not information seekers. They need less information, and they worry about many of the details that applied to general situations that may not be applicable to them. So part of the quality of life issue here, apart from being very open uh, with your team, is knowing if that's your style. Uh, and if it is your style, again, um, making sure that, that at some point during your treatment, in the infusion room, waiting in the radiation suite, that you get some of these questions answered. Um, or you have uh, uh, you're directed to someone or, or um, a site or um, some written information that can really describe what exactly would apply to you instead of a lot of general information that may apply to someone else with a different medical history with a different kind of cancer. So um, uh, lots of things have been described, both medical and the non-medical ones that I just added to the, um, to the picture that can really help you learn to live through cancer even when there are possible complications or complications that may seem scary to some but may be preventable and treatable. So uh, this needs to be kept in mind with the whole picture of the kinds of things people go through uh, when they have cancer or they're being treated for cancer or even as long-term survivors, really understanding what the, the the things that may come up in everyday life, if that's your style and seeking a lot of information. So I would get, because of this, this is a complicated topic, there are a number of questions that are going to come up, so I think I'll break here. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was uh, really excellent and very, uh, lots of information to help people with their day-to-day -day living. Um, and so thank you very much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. <clears throat> and our next speaker is um, Ms. Caroline Edlund. And Ms. Edlund is an, on on is an oncology social worker, and she's our online support group program director. And um, Ms. Edlund is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial support services, as well as the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Edlund. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of the call today. I would like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. 
all of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to talk with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help you. So please contact us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Evelyn. That was excellent and a wonderful resource at Cancer Care. We encourage people to take advantage of these services, and they're free. And now we have time for questions. We have actually thank you to all of the speakers because we now have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask Stephanie to please bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to she'll explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Stephanie. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, so, um, and this is a question that was addressed, but it probably would even merit being repeated again. What are some, what are the specific, um, can well, actually, the, the first question says, how can one prevent DVTs while on long plane, airplane rides? So, Dr. Fleischman, did you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, well, um, the one thing I, I neglected to mention uh, is stopping smoking in general, but in a cancer setting, that's a pretty much a given, but I guess sometimes it needs to be said. Um, many of the things that you read will talk about um, moving around once an hour, if that is possible. Sometimes it's not, but if it is. And then uh, either looking in the in-flight magazines or um, being prepared with the kinds of uh, lower, lower and upper body exercises that I described and asking your treatment team before you leave if compression stockings may be helpful to you. Excellent. Thank you. May I, may I, may I also oh, add, Dr. Uh, Messenger? It's always good to plan ahead and make sure that you're wearing comfortable clothing, nothing that is very tight or constricting, uh, some comfortable shoes. Uh, Dr. Linehan mentioned the uh, support hose or compression stockings, uh, but making sure that you're wearing some comfortable shoes will also add to that. And if there's turbulence, 
where uh, you're uh, asked to remain in your seat belt, just stretching the legs, moving the feet up and down, or doing uh, exercises in your seat, uh, that can be helpful. But all, I think early planning is very important. Make sure your medications are with you on the plane rather than in packed luggage um, and also are checked luggage and then making sure that you are wearing comfortable clothing. That's very good advice because often people forget that um, planning ahead in terms of the medications with you all the time, not somewhere checked. Excellent point. And the suggestions, these are wonderful. Dr. Lenahan, did you want to add anything as well? Or even repeat something, just different voices people hear. <laughs> it's so important. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, you know, especially on, on long car rides or plane rides, uh, you know, absolutely to get up and walk around about every hour or so is really key. And sometimes it's a real challenge if you're in the middle of a row with a bunch of big people around you, then you may not feel very inclined to do it. But it's, uh, it is a big step, and I think, you know, I frequently advise, you know, the patients that I think are especially high risk, that that's such an important piece that you can, uh, you can do to try to prevent the, the clot. And, you know, that is such a big, if you do have a blood clot during the course of your treatment, it, it really does have a major impact on how things go in general. So prevention is absolutely the key. And we have another question from one of our online participants, some from, from Jay. Following surgery or for any other hospitalization, should compression hose be worn in order to prevent blood clots from occurring? So, um, Dr. Lenahan, do you want to address that? Yeah, I think that, uh, again, it depends on the type of surgery, uh, but pretty much any kind of surgery, one of the one of the major risks for the development of a clot is immobilization. So, you know, if somebody has an abdominal surgery and it's going to take a week or two for them to feel like they can get up and get around or maybe even longer, then, you know, the, the, the part about being immobile is, is really their biggest risk. And so, you know, for whatever the surgery is, getting up and moving about is, is absolutely key. And then the support hose are, they're very helpful really at any point. You know, I think the biggest problem, as was mentioned before, is that some people don't like to put them on because they're, they may be uncomfortable, but uh, they really can make a big difference. Thank you. And any other comments from any of our speakers? Can we take the next? Okay. Thank you. This is great. We have a wonderful team here, I have to say, and, and wonderful questions as well. This is a, a really, um, thank you all. And um, our next question, Stephanie? Again, to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchdown telephone. And um, so we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, so this is a bit of a long question, and we'll um, let me, um, it's from John, having developed a, a polyamylus while hospitalized for a blood clot in the context of myeloma treatment, I would like to know whether the standard treatment would be to stay in the hospital bed without moving for many days or not. The clot developed after 36 hours of Lovenox and um, complete bed rest after getting up to take a shower. Um, so... Um, <clears throat> uh, Dr. Mitchell, would you like to address that one in a general way? Or? 
certainly. Um, being in the hospital is certainly a risk factor for developing a clot, and many hospitals have standard prevention procedures for all patients. Uh, if there is still a thrombotic event, we would want to make sure that uh, therapy is started right away. And depending on the situation, uh, someone might uh, recommend to the patient to remain uh, immobile. In other words, don't walk around very much for the first few days. Uh, but depending on the location of the clot, uh, another recommendation will be to get up and walk. Um, so it would depend on the healthcare team and whatever the doctor recommended, that is what uh, should be done. There are no standards that fit all patients. And in other words, we say there is not a one shoe fits all, but every patient is different and may be given different recommendations. Excellent, thank you. Um, and um, another question from one of our other um, participants, from Chandra. What, is, what are the specific cancers that warrant VTE prophylaxis? Um, so um, I might ask the entire team to weigh in on that. Um, and um, uh, Dr. Lenahan, do you want to start with that? Because um, I'm beginning to hear that it could affect any cancer, but um, if you would just um, address that. Yeah, there's definitely some that are worse than others, but uh, so for instance, uh, in terms of the likelihood of developing uh, a venous thromboembolism, you know, in terms of in somebody who hasn't previously had one, that probably pancreas cancer is the is the highest, and then you know, stomach cancer may be close uh, in terms of being at pretty high risk. I think I would also say a, mul a patient with multiple myeloma who's on multiple drugs, uh, you know, maybe one drug is not that risky, but when you start having combinations of therapies, they're known to be uh, yeah, significantly higher risk for thromboembolism. So, you know, if you have a person who has uh, one type of cancer that is generally low risk and they're very active, then you probably wouldn't want to, you know, go with some potent blood thinner in that in that setting. But on on the other on the other contrast, you know, if you had a person with uh, pancreatic or ovarian cancer and they were going to be immobile because they got admitted or they're going to get chemotherapy through uh, intravenous therapy, then those are going to be high-risk patients, and in that situation, you would definitely want to do something uh, on a, uh, more intense as far as prophylaxis. I would agree, and there are also um, other cancers such as promyelocytic leukemia, which has a very high risk, uh, but also if the patient has other medical conditions such as um, heart disease, or any reason for having edema of the lower extremities or swelling of the legs. So some patients may have had other 
medical problems such as heart failure uh, or other reasons to have swelling of the legs. So a lot depends on the actual disease process. Number two, whether or not the patient has had any other medical conditions. Uh, number three, whether the patient is obese or not. Uh, number four, whether they have a long smoking history or not. Uh, and then one that we don't think about too much is whether the patient has any kind of uh, portacatheter or any other indwelling catheter such as a uh, ureteral cancer, uh, ureteral um, port or a catheter that goes between the kidney and the bladder. So there are lots of other conditions that can increase the risk of um, clotting. So it's very important to speak with the physician, speak with the nurse or other member of the healthcare team so that they know. There are also some medications that are over-the-counter and commonly used either as vitamins or supplements or as alternative cancer therapies that can increase the risk of clotting. So it's very important to let the doctor or other member of the healthcare team know exactly every single medication uh, that the patient is taking. Very comprehensive. Um, any, anyone, Dr. Fleischman, do you add anything? Or? Uh, I think everything was well covered. <laughs> Very well covered and incredible. This is amazing. Okay. And now we have another question from Jonathan. Once diagnosed with a blood clot and the clot is dissolved, what causes the swelling in to remain in an extremity? Are there procedures to be performed to decrease or eliminate the swelling? Dr. Lenahan, could you start with that one? Yeah, I think the this is actually a really controversial area, and uh, we frequently have to deal with the consequences of decisions made at the time of the diagnosis of a blood clot. So, so I think this one, this is very difficult in general. I would say that if you have a uh, DVT in, say, a lower extremity, and you are getting uh, chemotherapy, and it may have some effect on your platelet or your blood counts, such that you would be at higher risk for bleeding, then sometimes people put in what's called an IVC filter, and what that would do is prevent a big blood clot from coming from your legs and going to your lungs, and that that would be a, you know a large pulmonary embolus. So that would be, you know, potentially a life-threatening condition. Conceptually, that seems to make perfect sense. You know, you put some sort of filter or uh, basket there to keep that blood clot from going going into your lungs. The problem is, is that that will always, uh, in the future, that that will be a device that leads to subsequent blood clots. So, you know, it may have helped you in the acute setting, but it's going to promote uh, blood clots in your lower extremities from that point on. So, you know, if that is a decision that is made for whatever reason, we would always say at this point, you know, make sure you put in one, uh, one of those devices that 
that can be removed percutaneously. So I think that that's a really important thing to think about if you're going to go take that step and, and, and do that type of procedure. In terms of, you know, any specific treatment for a blood clot in, you know, say an extremity, I think that if you identify the cause of it, like for instance, uh, as was mentioned earlier, if you have a port or a, uh, a pick line or an indwelling catheter in, in an arm, for instance, and you develop a blood clot in that arm, there always needs to be a discussion and a decision made as to whether to remove that, and most likely you're going to remove it. But uh, I think that uh, identifying the cause of the blood clot and then, of course, you know, doing appropriate blood thinner treatment is, is the biggest step. And then for longer-term ways of preventing chronic venous problems, usually exercise is the, the most important step. Thank you. Um, uh, and these are excellent questions, and thank you for the, uh, our, having a wonderful panel of experts to address them. Um, there is another question from one of our online participants. Um, so uh, the, the question is, what is my risk of bleeding when being treated for blood clots, and are there any other side effects to look out for? Again, Dr. Lanahan, if you could address that. Uh, yeah. That <laughs> As all these questions, they're they're good ones. They're right on the money, but the they they bring up the the issues that we have to struggle with. So I mean, they're not easy questions. But what I would say is, every blood thinner that you know of, of which now now there are probably ten legitimate blood thinners beyond aspirin that uh, you know you might be considered in this whole equation. And the problem is, is that every one of them makes you more likely to bleed. So, and, you know, there may be arguably differences between one or the other, but in the end, all of them are blood thinners to try to prevent the progression of a blood clot. And in the process of doing that, they're going to put you at higher risk for bleeding. So this is where it really becomes a very personalized decision to the patient, you know, to factor in their other illnesses if they have any, uh, factor in any potential risk factors for bleeding that they may have, and if there are things that you can correct, then you want to do that. So, for instance, if they had a history of peptic ulcer disease or stomach ulcers, you know, you may want to have them on, you know, the best therapy to prevent the uh, prevent a uh, stomach ulcer at the same time that you're having them on a blood thinner just so that they don't have any kind of blood loss from their stomach. So this does require really very complex management by a very skilled team is what you'd be saying, a multidisciplinary team um, of experts. Um, Dr. Lennon, is that correct? Or? Oh, yeah, and I would say, uh, you know, there's been a lot of research done, but there's a lot that needs to be done. So, so I think that we... We understand a lot of things, but, but at the same token, because we have a, a several new drugs that, you know, sort of expand our armamentarium in terms of options and in, in, in treatment, you know, we need to understand how to use those best and in which patients they're going to be most effective. And I'd like to add to that, I agree with everything that Dr. Leonard has said, but also prevention 
of uh, circumstances that can lead to bleeding. For example, for many cancer treatments, uh, there can be a peripheral neuropathy and the feet don't move as well or the patient may not realize where the feet are. So prevention of accidents in the home, for example, removal of uh, small rugs that are uh, not uh, stabilized, uh, climbing onto surfaces or heights that might allow for falls, uh, all, climbing on ladders, for example, or standing in chairs to reach um, top shelves. Uh, the patient should refrain from those things. So uh, speak with the physician and the management team um, to make sure that we have done as much as we uh, could to prevent bleeding, but also looking for any medications that might interfere with the uh, anticoagulant. For example, in, with Coumadin, uh, simple medications such as Tylenol or even uh, the wine or drinks that patients may consume on a regular basis may interfere with uh, Coumadin therapy and therefore predispose to bleeding. So the best uh, method of preventing bleeding is to discuss with the healthcare team uh, any medications that one might uh, take, any special habits that one might have, and uh, any uh, career or work-related circumstances, for example, climbing onto ladders or others. So any of those uh, should any of those preventive steps should be taken. Excellent. That's really very important um, to be aware of that. That's thank you. This is, and I think um, as, as I guess Dr. Lyons has just said that these are really the questions you're asking are really outstanding questions, and of course um, are, are require this entire team to address them. So um, we have another question, Stephanie, I believe, from one of our telephone participants. Our question comes from Doris C. Your line is open. Doris, if your line is on mute, can you please unmute it? All right, they may have pressed the star one key in error. Thank you, Scott. And then we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, if there was a clot, a blood clot caused by a non-cancerous condition, once dissolved, what additional steps could be taken to prevent a reoccurrence of a blood clot? Dr. Lenahan, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, I think the... The biggest thing is to, uh, you know, avoid trauma to that area, for instance, or, you know, prolonged immobilization. Those are, those are sort of the basic things. And as was mentioned earlier about the support hose can also be helpful. And then, uh, uh, you know, like I said, exercise or regular walking if it's a lower extremity issue. And then uh, in terms of, you know, the context in which somebody developed a blood clot, you know, let's say it was, uh, you know, treatment with a certain thing or, you know, maybe it was, you know, chemotherapy, for example, you know, you, 
you want to look at that chemotherapy and find out was there one of those drugs that put that patient at significant risk and therefore would you modify that that type of treatment so in the case of somebody who didn't have cancer again you would want to make sure that there wasn't some other medication that uh, put them at higher risks for instance you know some you know doesn't happen that often but you know, high-dose birth control pills, for instance, you know, make you more likely to have a blood clot. So, so those would be, you know, you want to make sure you, you understand why the person developed the blood clot in the first place. Um, and there's one uh, last late-breaking question here. Um, since I have fragile skin and eczema, my doctor says I should not wear the anti-embolism stocking. Is there an alternative for me? Uh, Dr. Lenahan, is there any any thoughts about that? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. This <laughs> this is this probably would be an area that we might have a little argument over, in the sense that you, your skin has to be pretty bad to, to, you know. Now, granted, I'm sure people could have really bad eczema, and it would be really uncomfortable to wear, uh, you know, support hose or or some sort of arm. Uh, uh, arm stocking. Uh, so in those situations, I don't know, you know, I think you could consider other uh, other strategies like where you wrap the arm, you know, kind of with a, with a wrap. You don't pull on a, uh, like a big stocking. You don't pull it on and scrape over the skin, but rather you just wrap it, and that can be one strategy. But like I said, those those are uh, a very good question, although quite challenging, I'd say. You really have to personalize that, that recommendation. And Dr. Lennon, could you just say a word about, because I think many people may not understand about the different levels of compression that stockings have, and indeed um, how those decisions are made about some of the different levels of compression that people have kind of and, and their effectiveness? Yeah, I think that especially when we have to struggle with patients that are, you know, for instance, they have, they may have a blood clot issue, uh, but they also have heart failure and we're putting them on medications that may have some effect on their blood pressure uh, or, you know, their level of hydration, you know, so we're giving them powerful diuretics. Uh, so you, you know, in those settings, you know, we are all, almost always, whenever we're going to deal with, uh, you know, problems with especially lower extremity uh, swelling, you know, you're really going to want the support hose to go up to the mid or higher up into the thigh. And, you know, that can be a real challenge for some patients to get those on. Certainly. And for patients who have uh, skin disorders uh, such as eczema or uh, psoriasis, the 100% um, cotton uh, socks that do not have elastic at the top uh, are also very useful and can be utilized. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, I have to say this has been an extraordinary um, program. I have to say that both our speakers are fantastic, and I have to say that also... Um, all of the participants have asked such, well, some of them are really incredible questions, actually. We do want you to take those questions back to your healthcare team, 
We hope that the information you received from our wonderful speakers today gives you some information, additional information, that you can then have more informed discussions with your healthcare team so they can customize it to what you need. Nevertheless, this has been extraordinarily informative. I do want to remind everyone this is a one-hour program and that in our planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one-hour program. So with that in mind, I would just like to kind of review with you um, the services you can access from Cancer Care and also how you can get other questions that you may develop on this, you know, after the call ends or that you didn't get to have a chance to ask or think about later on answered. So first of all, for any of your additional medical questions, I strongly recommend that you call the National Cancer Institutes, they have a, um, a hot information service, and their number is 1-800-422-6237. Again, 1-800-422-6237. And their staff are there to answer any of your medically focused questions around the topics that we've talked about today. If, on the other hand, you would like to have some practical and financial assistance help, or you would like to have help with counseling or joining a support group um, or talking with one of our social workers or getting some informational materials that we may have here at Cancer Care or joining one of our upcoming, uh, you know, uh, workshops that we're offering, get a publication, then I suggest you call our Cancer Care uh, number at 1-800-813-HOPE, just 1-800-813-4673, and our oncology social workers are here to help you with those some of the more practical and emotional and social concerns that you may have. And it's very important, this issue cuts across, first of all, it starts with a medical issue that you must address with your healthcare team. And I think as it pointed out, it's a multidisciplinary team, just as you had today. We had a multidisciplinary healthcare team today on the call. And so that's very important. But also, these issues also create personal and social issues and emotional issues that you then want to discuss with someone, and for many people they find it helpful to joining a support group where they can talk with others about the concerns and their lifestyle issues that they may um, need to adapt or change so that they actually, um, and, and even the communication skills with their healthcare team. Be sure to remember to bring up all your questions with your healthcare team. So with that being said, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I do want to wish you all a very fine day, and I um, look forward to you being on other programs coming up. And uh, thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.